Hello, I'm Lawrence Woodruff, and my co-host is a master teacher at the University of Kansas Center for STEM Learning. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my co-host teaches freshman and college biology at Olathe East High School. Professional growth involves ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education literature while drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Catherine III Russian Imperial Stout from the Wichita Brewing Company. Uh, I didn't realize that the beer that you procured was from Wichita. I'm really excited to be drinking this one because I have enjoyed several trips uh, to Wichita breweries over the course of my life. It was recommended to those who like the oak-aged Imperial Yeti. Mm. And since that's us, we... Thought I'd give it a shot. So we get to start season two by welcoming a guest. Abby Whitbeck is the executive director for the College Board AP Strategy Team. The College Board's AP program stands for Advanced Placement, and it focuses on supporting teachers to deliver college-level coursework opportunities to high school students. College credit can be earned by taking a nationally standardized end-of-course exam that colleges can accept as equivalent to completing their on-campus class. Abby's focus is AP access and success for students, especially from the perspective of demographics, promoting best practices from successful AP programs. Welcome, Abby. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what exactly that means? Thanks. Thanks so much for that question. So we said demographics, and when I think about it in particular, it's what does the program do to identify disparities in course availability, disparities in course participation, exam participation, and exam success? And those disparities can be by gender. We can look at women, women in STEM courses. It can also be looking at students from underrepresented backgrounds by race and ethnicity. I spend a lot of time thinking about students who have financial need um, and their ability to participate and succeed in the AP program. Um, and in particular, right now, there's been a strong focus in the program on what are we doing to best serve students in rural communities and coming from rural areas. And I think that has really expanded uh, our lens of late as we think about rural being, you know, there's, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and there's rural within 50 miles of where I live. And I think we often forget that. And so that's become a big focus recently. You say big focus recently, and that's the real deal. There's been a several articles that have come out, which is what Lawrence and I read in preparation for this segment. There was the seven things research reveals and doesn't about advanced placement. And that was in the Washington Post. And then there was the peer-reviewed literature, uh, which was an article called Advanced Placement, the Dual Challenge of Equal Access and Effectiveness. And it was really trying to analyze what's the progress that the Advanced Placement Program has made over the course of the last couple decades, and what are the changes that we're making recently to try and address some of the remaining problems uh, that are still present. And so maybe we need to start from the beginning of what, what has been happening over the course of the last couple decades. I think when a lot of us were in high school, there was this concept of an AP student and somebody who was part of the AP group. Um, and I think over the last couple of decades, we've seen a lot of changes in how schools think about who should participate in AP, who should get access to those classes, and what practices across the school will best lead to more inclusive classrooms. So we've seen schools shift from using teacher recommendations and sort of typical prerequisite lenses on who should get access to AP to a, a greater proliferation of um, what we would think of as almost like an opt-out model where it's expected that a student would participate in AP unless through conversation 
with a guidance counselor and a teacher, that student can withdraw from an AP course. We've also seen a lot of schools use more data-driven models. So one of the big uh, upticks in AP participation in the last 10, 15 years was driven by the College Board really linking PSAT data to AP and using schools' PSAT data to turn that back around to schools and say, these are the students who, based on their PSAT scores, are likely to be really successful on an AP exam in biology, in calculus, in statistics. Um, so making that relationship between PSAT data, we are able to generate rosters, we call it um, an AP potential tool that educators have access to online. I don't know if either of you have ever used the AP potential tool. Yeah, but you can... We have, because Olathe's did use it. Uh, so I taught the AP program when I was at Olathe East, and I know that that was something that was available to us. Yeah, and our hope is that that really just expands the list beyond, you know, all those other indicators that schools use to find students for AP courses are, are great, and then hopefully this can add a, another dimension of who else might be able to be really successful who doesn't naturally come to the attention of people who are looking to recruit into those classes. So that, and then another really amazing program that started up in the late 90s that actually was eliminated with the passing of the um, Every Student Succeeds Act was the federal uh, subsidy for low-income students' AP exam fees, um, and that program really uh, made the program much more accessible for, to families for whom the exam fee was a barrier, um, and so that brought the fee that after the college board subsidy and after contributions from schools would have typically been about $50 for students down to about $12 to $15. Since the elimination of that subsidy, a lot of states have stepped up and kind of replaced it with their own funding, so we've seen a continuation of that that does look like it might be eroding slightly, but for the most part, it looks like we're settling into a place where students are paying about out-of-pocket, about $11, um, students who are coming from low-income backgrounds, which is great to see. Yeah, well, and I was just going to I was gonna highlight a few of the numbers that were in that piece of literature that we referenced because they, they compared a lot of changes in participation from 94 to 2013, uh, or that was, the, I think, the 2012 test-taking numbers. And so participation in AP jumped from less than 15% all the way up to 39% globally, and some of that included some considerable improvements in some of the underrepresented groups who were participating. Latino, Latino in particular, I was really heartened, were up to 36% in 2012, but that still is lower than, uh, than our typical white students who are at 41%. And so I think uh, a question that we've discussed on the show uh, in the past is the goal is not to put every single student in AP, I think. Like, we don't want every single person in AP because not every single student wants to be in an AP course. Uh, so I think the question is getting every student who intends to to become an AP student, how do we get them access into the AP courses? And I know the thing that I got excited about when we were talking this summer was some of the new initiatives that are trying to prepare those students so that they can, the students who want to be participating in an AP can be participating in AP. So, what's a, so what kinds of things can you tell us about there? The way I think about that continuum you're talking about to get to that 39% of, so 39% of students who graduate from high school in this country right now are like, are, will have taken at least one AP exam by the time they graduate. So we think about that taking an exam. Um, there's a chain of events that have to happen for a student to, to hit that kind of benchmark, right? And so they have to have access to a course. And there have to be enough seats in that course in their school that they can get one of those seats. And then somebody has to really drive them and motivate them not just to participate in the course, but in the exam. So those are all independent decisions. Now, for so many of our students, that's all taken as one decision. They, there is a course, there's a seat for them, and taking the exam is an expectation. But for so many others of our students, it's about closing gaps across each of those 
events in their experience. To your question, what we were talking about this summer, which is what it might be one of the biggest changes in the AP program coming um, ahead, is that the AP program right now is investing significantly in developing a whole new suite of resources and supports for teachers, for AP teachers, to really help teachers track student progress throughout the year um, and really gauge how they're performing on the content and the skills that AP students need to be successful in order to be successful in the end of your exam, but to do that in granular ways throughout the year and with more disaggregated data so they can really see what have my students been successful at and what, um, where do they need more practice and more opportunities to learn. And the other thing that we talked about, uh, which will get to that sort of continuum I talked about, is that the AP program, in parallel with releasing all those resources in the 2019-2020 school year, so a year from now, exams will, we will call it fall registration and fall ordering. Students will order their AP exams in the fall across the country, beginning in 2019. Um, whereas, I think you both know, right now, uh, AP exam order deadlines are in April. So that's a pretty big shift when you think about it on paper like that, but also more than half of our schools right now already ask their students to effectively make their decision about taking the exam in the fall as it is. Um, so it's probably a big shift for about half of our schools or a little bit less. So making that decision earlier, does that matter? Why? What's... Why? So they commit earlier, like, so what? So I'm, I'm, I'm particularly excited about this. I think that this is probably one of the most scrutinized decisions the program has made in the last several years, and it's, it really goes back to the whole purpose that I stated at the beginning of our team, which is to really think about what are the major practices that certain schools have implemented that have really led to game-changing uh, narrowing of gaps in AP participation and access. We've learned through data that students who are in schools where they're expected to make decisions early in the year are more likely to not only take the exam, uh, which I think is probably intuitive to most people, but are more likely to be successful on the exam. We can talk about numbers, but I think, you know, it's, it would be interesting to hear your reflections on does that jive with the classrooms that you've led, um, but to see students as a group make decisions earlier in the year, the kind of the anecdotal evidence, which seems to be rolling up to data, is that you create a culture that leads students to be more able to stay motivated, to stay committed, um, and to respond to feedback, respond to uh, criticism, and respond to setbacks in ways that are productive, um, and that helps them be ultimately be more successful. That is, that's consistent with what will be the next segment here in this in this month's show, is talking about uh, some of those institutional constraints that are greater barriers to some students than others. And so that was, it was a really important part of my AP classroom was that every single student takes the exam. That was just, that was the way it was. There was no rule that let me enforce that in any meaningful way other than uh, I was calling home every night. I was sending notes. It was in the syllabus. We talked about it regularly and I was pretty successful. I, there was only about one or two students in my entire career who didn't take that AP exam. But I know that I was kind of atypical in that, in that approach. And that and for a lot of um, teachers, there's this kind of this pressure of if I'm evaluated by my the mean of my AP score, then I need to be selecting for students who are, I think are going to succeed, and the students I'm likely to succeed has some inherent biases to it. Some of those decisions lead to being barriers for other students to participate in those AP exams. And so I got really excited hearing about this policy of having students decide earlier because it's my hope that it will remove some of those implicit biases throughout the year and the barrier that it presents 
to some students more than others in um, opting out of participating in this AP exam. If they have declared, I want to be an AP student, then I want every student to feel that investment, that equity in, I'm going to be an AP student, I'm on the team, I'm participating, let's all do this together. I think that's right. I mean, so what I think of is like the resources, our hope is that these new resources that AP is developing will really focus on getting students to take that first maybe those students who don't yet even see themselves as belonging in that classroom to feel more confident because over time, hopefully their, their teachers will feel more confident that they can give them the right feedback that they need to be successful. But this new policy is really about those students who took that, that risk that you're talking about where they showed up for the class. Um, and then if you can think of any population of students who are just more likely to be less confident over time and all the various ways that we implicitly signal to students you know, maybe this isn't right for you. Maybe you're not going to be as successful at this. Any, any, and when I say we, students absorb those signals from all different sources, and and it can be from just not seeing students like themselves be successful in years prior. And so, this policy is hopefully meant to kind of replicate what you were doing in your classroom in kind of one of the more anonymous ways that the AP program can drive change. Is to say, you know, if. Michael in Kansas is able to create that culture. Is there anything we can do by moving our deadline up to help other teachers who maybe don't have the same support from their administrator can say, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna at least be able to advocate that my students take this exam and, and help them make that decision early on. And then once I've got that looming, you know, exam at the end of the year that we're all moving towards, I can use that as a, hey, we're all gonna be taking this, so let's like, let's really prepare and work backwards from that. And that's our hope, but we also have tested this, and so that's a big, a big thing. As I mentioned, you know, we were very apprehensive about is this. Are, there are ways where you could imagine that you're going to see a lot of students who aren't ready to say yes at the beginning of the year who would say no, and maybe you'd actually, you know, prevent students who might gain confidence from getting access to the exam. So um, before we made this the the official policy, um, we collaborated over the past year with 14 districts representing 100 schools from very diverse contexts. Um, only in four states, but very diverse context in terms of school uh, demographics, um, urbanicity, pass rates historically in their AP programs, like the, the run, and had those schools order on an early model this past year. And what we saw really replicates and actually is perhaps even more exemplary than what we've seen in the schools that already do this. We saw significant increases in the growth of students who participate in AP, especially from underrepresented backgrounds, and not just in exam participation, but we also saw significant increases in the percent of students who earned scores of three or higher. Good. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the, uh, the skeptic in the room, going to be honest. It seems that if AP programs are going to be indicators of collegiate success, the students have to pass. They have to get a three or higher on that test. Being in the class and not taking the test or being in the class and taking the test and getting a two or one is sounds like it's wasted time. So uh, I've been, I was waiting for that statement. I was waiting for you to say the early commitment does not just get more people to participate, not just you know the hurdle of getting people in the class and then getting people to take the test. It's not just the jump from step two to step three or step one to step, step two, it also contributes to greater success. And that needed to be true for me to be impressed. So thank you. Well done. Congratulations. Well, but we share that that internal skepticism. I think, you know, it's hard to say from where I sit, but it would not have satisfied us just to see a lot more students taking exams and then ones and twos. I mean, there are 
perfectly uh, mission-driven reasons we don't have that. There are strategic reasons that you don't want to see those rates of ones and twos go up. So nobody wanted that, right? I think in particular, seeing that growth in threes and fours and fives, it's not surprising, right? I mean, you're you're going to see students who are opting out of the exam, and when they opt out of the exam, they're opting out of working hard, and then later on, it's a foregone conclusion that they can't be successful on the exam, but it doesn't have to be. When people think about the, the students who don't end up taking the exam, you don't immediately think of a student who would have done really well, right? You don't think of, oh, if only I'd gotten her to take it, she would have done well. By the time you get to April right now, it's kind of like the ones who aren't taking it are probably, for the most part, not taking it because they probably wouldn't be successful, but that didn't have to be the way it was, but I think we just weren't sure that it would actually play out this way, um, and I think the availability of the added resources for teachers will only strengthen the increase in successful scores. Uh, you, I, I want to expound a little bit on a comment you made in the middle there. The not every student who we want to be taking an exam is somebody who we say, oh man, I wish I, if they'd only taken it, they would have totally earned a four. Following that narrative backwards a little bit, because I think that's part of this conversation. I think it's part of what's in the in the literature that we read. Also, is there are some students who, if they opted in at the beginning of the school year, can be successful. You've got the data to show that that's on the tape already. Uh, but also, greater participation is paired, if I read this correctly, with some lower scores, which suggests that there are some students taking the exam and doing not as well as they want to be doing. And so we're we are increasing the participation of some students who are not getting everything out of their experience the way they want them to be getting. And it suggests that there's more to be done than just increasing participation in AP coursework. Uh, and more is needed to be done, especially further up in the pipeline. And I think there's actually, you all have some answers to that. Uh, there's a news story that we're going to put in the show notes about some of the pre-AP programs. Uh, and I know that I'm involved in some of that work also. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing to strengthen the pipelines that might lead to AP work as well? Yeah, absolutely. So pre-AP is, I think, probably going to turn out to be one of the best ideas, right, that the College Board has really invested in because it's so much about what you're saying is that by the time we're focusing on this little moment of students who already got to a place that had AP courses and where at least somebody thought you could be in this course, we've already left so many students behind. So pre-AP is really about um, right now, where where we're working is in the ninth grade, um, and and I'm not sure, Michael, if you're in a pilot school, but the pre-AP program right now is piloting it. it, it so what is it? It's September now, so um, in 100 schools around the country, there are batches of ninth graders. It's meant to be all-inclusive. Any student in the ninth grade should be enrolled in the program if it's available, so it's not meant to already identify one set of students for AP and segregate them. It's meant to ensure that every ninth grader at least has a moment in time where he or she self-identifies as an AP student. I'm, pre I'm preparing to be an AP student. That's what my course is about. Um, and really what it is is it's taking the skills, especially the, the skills that are so powerful and so, so important to be successful in AP classes, and getting students early practice with those skills um, and, and at the right level for what they'd be doing in ninth grade. So if it's a world history course, um, they're going to be practicing historical thinking skills that will make them successful, whether it's in AP World History, whether it's AP European History, AP US History. And it's really about, it's really, I think, uh, the, the hundred schools that are in the pilot in the year ahead all had to, in their applications to be a pilot school, really talk about what they would do to make sure that the program was inclusive and that it really promoted inclusion, not just in the pre-AP program, but in the AP program as well. 
Um, so hopefully that will be a strong response. And again, it's it's much like this this other initiative that I've talked about. It's much it's a reflection of the many very strong pre AP programs that already exist. You know, these are not there are so many schools that already have something that's identified as pre AP, and that schools have really innovated as a way to get more students to feel confident taking AP courses. And so this is sort of our trying to make that more available um, to schools across the country. And so there's a pilot this year, and I'll just plug that the application deadline for next year's cohort of schools is coming up very soon. I think it's October 1st. Um, so students, so schools that are interested in being pre-AP in the 2019-2020 school year um, should uh, go to the website for that. What we will talk about later in this episode is acknowledging whatever um, drawbacks or whatever costs there might be for interventions. And so maybe that's the maybe that's the direction to take this is the segment that I actually that I think you may have listened to a, a while back. Students who don't self-identify as being college bound or they don't they don't intend to go to university, uh, so they may not have the same interest in college credit. And so there's who says, I want just regular biology. I don't really care about the AP credit, and I don't want to be honors. I want to learn to weld, and then I want to go work for this construction company. That's what I want to do. And that is paired with this general conversation. It's actually one of the other segments we've already taped for this coming month is about acknowledging downsides of interventions. So there is no panacea, there's no perfect medicine. So what are the things we need to be aware of as maybe the costs of a new initiative so a student who wants to, self, is, I'm a career track student. I, college is not for me. And that we get to too quickly get to a place where instead of talking that through with a student and trying to understand what beliefs they have about who college is for and who it's not for and why it's not for them, we too quickly want to meet them there. Like there's an easy way to just say, like, sure, we'll get you on an ag science cluster and you can pursue that, you know, two-year degree while you're in high school, or there's the teacher who can connect the student's interest to AP Environmental Science and then push that student to really think about, you know, the state university system at Cornell has a really amazing egg science program here and can push that student to take them those incremental steps towards a four-year degree. I worry that sometimes we get a little bit too quick to just serve to a student a program that meets exactly what they say they want right now. Like this afternoon, I was with some high schoolers, and they were telling me they all know what their major is, and they're all 15, and I just want them to maintain openness to the idea that that might not be their major, and probably the best thing they can do in high school is build as many skills as they can, and they might better build, they might be more successful at building those skills in AP courses. Because that's a big part of what I, so I work at the Center for STEM Learning, and so that's a, I have those statistics, so I'm going to put them in the show notes also, so we just put together uh, a, a graphic that shows some of the results, and we say, well, if we want to help them see their options with this four-year degree, like, they're ending up in basically the same job, so what good does that do them? Well, we have the numbers of their increased earning potential if they have that, that higher level of education, and so I think there's, uh, there's an actual dollar value amount of value that gets added to their experience if uh, they find that, yeah, I, as I understand more about this particular degree field, I can find something that maybe is a, a higher level of expertise, and so I can exercise all the same skills and have the same satisfying experience, but with a higher earning potential. And I think that's the thing that's, uh, we have the numbers for that, because that's what I do. So when we uh, cast a wider net, uh, to include more people in the AP experience, one of the um, critiques that have been written is that there's there in some circumstances 
AP is not necessarily always sold as a consistent with a consistent goal. What is the goal of AP? Is it to prepare students to be successful in college, or is it for those that are already college ready as high school students? AP is not meant to exclusively serve students who are already identified as advanced. It's meant to prepare students to be as successful as possible in college and increasingly in college and career. And for some students, that looks like giving them a chance to take courses while in high school that are going to be the most demanding of them and that they might not have otherwise had access to. And those are kind of, I think, part one side of your equation, which is the students who are already accelerated. Is this about helping them continue to take the next opportunity in their lane? Um, and so absolutely about serving that. But for other students, what that looks like is when we say to get access to coursework that will make them as successful as possible in college, it may be that being in an AP course is going to give them a different type of a classroom environment that's going to be more similar to what they'll see in college and experience the expectations that'll be ha that college professors will have of them, the roles that they'll need to play in team assignments. And so, and, and I don't think that students can't get that in non-AP courses. I think they're amazing non-AP teachers, and I think a lot of amazing AP teachers teach non-AP courses. So there's nothing exclusive about AP's ability to do that, but I just think that in many schools, AP tends to be the best preparation when it comes to what a student needs to be as successful as she or he possibly can. You know, and, and we spend a lot of time with faculty talking about, can you tell AP students from non-AP students in the classroom? And I think a lot of it is like people point to ways that AP students are sort of exhibiting leadership qualities um, when it comes to helping advance the dialogue in the classroom. They'll talk about AP students as the ones who are really helping their peers understand a topic because maybe they've seen it, they've, they've at least been exposed to it before. So I think it's, it's not just that group of students that have already been traditionally identified as accelerated, but it's giving a student maybe who hasn't been identified as accelerated his or her first chance or only chance to work alongside of the peers who have been traditionally accelerated in some cases um, and to do it through content that particularly interests him or her. So you'll see students who maybe never identify as an AP student in the, the sort of more core, quote unquote, academic disciplines, but who really get psychology, let's say, and they can be in there in that classroom holding their own, contributing and really developing as a scholar alongside students who are just typically accelerated and kind of inhabit the AP classrooms throughout their high school career. As kind of a sign-off, we really appreciate you coming on with us. If there are teachers who want to get more involved or want to want to uh, help promote some of these opportunities for their students, do you have somewhere that you'd like to direct them so they could learn more about the pre-AP program or the redesign or find the data? Just where where could teachers who are interested turn to learn more or maybe get involved? Yeah, absolutely. But there are two sites. One is what we're calling the AP 2019. That's where Teachers, school leaders, district leaders can learn more about the new resources and the new processes that I mentioned that are launching in 2019. So specifically, what are all the tools um, that students and teachers will have access to? And then what are the um, what are the contours of fall registration and ordering? And how might that change um, a building's policies and practices around AP? And then the other one, of course, is the pre-AP website, um, which also includes a way to register for pre-AP. I'll definitely direct you to both of those.
Intent matters. So our second segment is again a recommendation from the community of listeners, and so I'm excited to get back around and read the things that you're recommending. This one is a blog post by Carol Black called Science Slash Fiction. It's about evidence-based education, scientific racism, and how learning styles became a myth. The article is about learning styles and seeks to draw attention to some of the research that suggests that there are differences in the way people learn and that there are a number of educators who talk about learning styles, but then there is another contingent of educators who want to discuss the lack of research to support uh, learning styles being relevant to designing pedagogy and interventions for students ahead of time. Uh, And she sets up this sort of conflict between debunkers or being educators who use calls for evidence-based educational practices as a front for trying to advance legacy education practices, direct instruction, and a resistance for doing different things for different people. And then she critiques that for from a number, number of different perspectives. So there's a lot in this article. It goes several different places as you go through this longer essay format. So this was a tough read for us because ultimately we agree with many of her conclusions and we do not get there the same way that she gets there. Like at all, yeah. And so we have a lot of disagreements with some of the the presuppositions that she makes and some of the connections that she makes to get to what students need for learning, which makes us feel weird because we agree with her about what students need for learning we disagree with her a lot and then we are all in the same place at the end. So I'm glad she, yeah. I'm glad we're here together. I don't want the academic parsing of ideas to make it sound like we're arguing against providing rich and diverse experiences to best serve all students, especially the students who are most at risk to be harmed or subverted by the traditional power structure. I, Right. I'm on that boat that they need. we need to be responsive to what all of our students need. And that's, that's going to look very different than what it would look like in a, tradi- a traditional. And when I say traditional, uh, the article defines that to be like a direct instruction, teachers saying things, students remembering those things um, format. Uh, I That's a bad way to teach. And she even references it in the article that direct instruction is one of the worst ways to teach. Sure is. Like, yep. yep, sure is. Uh, we both agree that the standard account and that legacy practices have awful consequences to the vast majority of individuals that have to experience them, especially those that are further marginalized. Yeah. Uh, My struggle is uh, I self-identify as what she calls very aggressively a debunker. That was throughout the course of the article. I felt like her opening comments were really about hostility in debate, um, you know, putting down teachers who may um, who may argue that learning styles are have a place in the classroom and that, that their position should be valued. But then the rest of the article was really hostile and took a lot of um, cavalier liberties in making assumptions about the debunkers. And I, I am one. And a lot of the things she say all debunkers think, I don't think. So yeah. I think that I feel like there was some uh, some disconnect, I think, in the way she approached that argument. I have not seen any literature anywhere that suggests that identifying specific learning styles in our students 
is connected to effective classroom instruction choices, right? So knowing that students have a particular learning style lets me provide them specific experiences. I've never seen any literature that suggests that that can be done effectively, nor is there any presented in the, in the article. But that is really different than saying we need to provide lots of opportunities for different kinds of learning experiences for our students because yeah we very much do in fact we discussed an article to that effect uh, in season one this was back in episode 011 when we talked about different ways of processing different learning modalities and it activated different parts of the of the brain so needing different kinds of experiences is different i think than what learning styles usually means when teachers are talking about learning styles, where we say we are specifically targeting in advance particular preferences or modalities uh, that students may benefit more or less from. In regards to the debunking claim, one of the things that came up over and over is she, it felt like she was communicating that if you are a debunker, then you are also against differentiation. and. I think that is a big jump. I think that is a huge leap. We need to formatively assess where our students are at, what their skills are, uh, and who they are. As we, you know, one of the uh, one of our guests, Shannon Ralph, she she makes the claim that it's our job to know our students, and that means if we have to become a more culturally aware of their experiences, so that we can better scaffold them to uh, whatever cognitive development goals we have, then we have to do that. So culturally sensitive instruction is a type of differentiation that we need to be aware of. Recognizing that we need to, we cannot make assumptions about what skills they come into the classroom is a responsibility that we have that we have that we have to be aware of. We need to assess those things and then we need to respond to them in order to provide them uh, scaffolding to develop. But I can do all of that and also say. I am not going to employ any strategies that target learning styles because those haven't yet been illustrated to be effective. I really appreciated in the early, maybe a third of the of the article, there was a description where researchers have identified so many different categories in which different learners might learn differently. I think she mentioned 72 different categories identified in one particular um, literature review. And so if each of those are just dichotomous, then we have some astronomical number of possible differences between learners more than there are people in the world. And I'm on that boat that, yeah, there are yeah. lots of different learners. And so uh, she references Bonini's paradox, which I really appreciate uh, because that's sort of my position on this learning styles idea is, yes, of course, we have many different learners in our classroom and every single student is unique because they have different background experiences, cultural experiences, uh, their brains are processing information in fundamentally biologically different ways. But that complexity renders it that knowledge not useless, but to a practitioner, very difficult to implement. Uh, and so Bonini's paradox in its simplest form is to say everything that is simple is false and everything that is complex is useless. And I, that's sort of my position on learning styles at its most fundamental level is, yes, there are many differences in the way students learn, but we don't yet know enough about them to target treatments to specific learning styles of specific students. And so... I'm, why talk about it? Like, there are differences. Yeah, um, I like the Bonini's paradox, too. Uh, um, and one of the things that she also mentioned that I was totally on board with, very resonant, is that uh, in the research base, 
and as you, you suggested, learning styles are ill-defined. There are a lot of um, not quite synonymous terms, but like relevant cousin terms, and it has this wide variety of, of possible meanings, and it means one thing in this context and one thing in that context, and it, they kind of get uh, umbrellaed all together, and we don't, we don't have parsing for what that means. When someone is shouting, learning styles are effective and I use them in my class, because that, that term is ill-defined, I don't exactly know what that means. And when someone says learning styles do not exist, I don't exactly know what they're saying either uh, because it's sort of become this phantom, um, shape-shifting type of term. So there is space in the research to continue to explore how individuals with different experiences approach and process new pieces of information. And we should. We should explore them. Yeah, that research should happen. And whatever we call them when that's published, if we want to uh, call them learning styles, that's fine. If there's a teacher out there who reads this and is moved to uh, embrace responsive instruction, great. Good job. That's Let's all get there. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not how I would get there, but let's go and to be clear that is evidence-based so if somebody is talking to you and saying evidence-based research says you should do direct instruction and for the people who it doesn't help there is something wrong with them they're wrong like that that right. is not what the evidence suggests and we've got an entire season of podcasts supporting that uh with all of our references because that's what the research we've been reading every month has been telling us is evidence-based assertions are consistent with varied methods uh, there was one thing that uh, that sort of got mentioned and then uh, where she cites a, a piece by actually uh, another researcher at KU, uh, Dr. Zhao, what works may hurt. And I think that's actually a topic that I could really get into and probably learn some things from talking about the trade-off in all these treatments because too often we talk about uh, the next new thing being the best full stop and that's rarely the whole story. There are often uh, side effects or costs to a particular method. So exploratory learning is better for these reasons, but it also is direct instruction yields some benefits that exploratory learning does not. We may not prioritize them as much, or they may be many fewer than all of the benefits of inquiry learning or project-based instruction, but they exist. And to ignore their existence entirely is to Oversimplify. Yeah. Pretend some, a picture is simpler than it is. Which is actually uh, the villain throughout this article. It's the villain from her perspective because individuals that are uh, aggressively asserting that um, learning styles do not exist are overlooking the nuances of, which the real situation is, we don't really have enough uh, findings to know how to implement anything there may or may not be about learning styles. Mm -hmm. And then equating that position that learning styles don't exist with differentiation is not to be used is also an oversimplification, which is a huge problem. Gets back to Bonini's paradox. If it is simple, it is wrong. And if it is complex, it's not useful. Uh, so trying to find that middle ground of, yeah, and she mentions humility, which I also think is super important of, here's the things that we think we know. Here are the reasons we think we know them whatever crazy idea I may want to put into the classroom is not necessarily better than other tools that might be at my disposal. So I need to be ready to understand that there are better ways to do things if that evidence should present itself. Uh, so in both cases, the humility 
to understand that there is a lot of complexity and anything that fits into a pithy statement is overlooking that complexity. All of that being said, there's also some um, value, there's a lot of value to the um, critique of power structures in this article mm -hmm. that women's voices are some are oftentimes uh, talked over and ignored. That is a problem because that removes perspective from whatever, whatever problem solving we're trying to engage in. That um, systems that select and um, propagate the current power structure um, have been in place in, in civilizations for as long as there have been civilizations and education is not immune from that kind of power propagation distribution uh, effect. There have been things done with education to do that. There have been things done in the in the practice of science to propagate information and its and its um, possibility. We one of the things she said harkened back to something that uh, we had we had talked about in episode 015 in terms of responsive instruction is that when you fail to uh, allow people to be involved in the generation of ideas, you are engaged in epistemological oppression well that gives me the same kind of feeling as the term that she used which is cognitive imperialism when that occurs at a systemic level it will lead to epistemological oppression uh culturally which has there have been power constructs in history that that have and continue to contribute to that and we agree with that those exist as well so we have this uh we're fine picking this bone about learning styles as a research uh, construct where we disagree with her while we agree with all of the major take-home messages. Yeah, her call her to essay. action is good. Yes, her call to action is good. Yeah. yeah, and just to put a point on, and then this is actually the last thing I have to say on the subject, is um, making appeals to research has baked in some of that colonialism because of who has been allowed to engage in research to this point. So when somebody appeals to you with uh, a piece of research-supported X or evidence-supported Y, that does not automatically make it superior to some other treatment or intervention, which is why my sign-off is discuss research. It's not do research, because research is not immediately better than something else that is yet to be researched, but it's something that merits discussion. So is that evidence citation that you're providing, is does it have woven into it that same oppression, that same bias, that same cultural monolingualism to make a reference to one of our most recent episodes uh, all of those narrow perspectives are they baked into that research and so we're missing the same things that, that treatment might have so when somebody makes an appeal to a research supported methodology the question needs to be let's discuss it so we can find whether those same oppressive mechanisms are present in the research that are that are present in the system Know your students. So, so we've had a busy month, but sure. how was the beer? It is nice and uh, 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 rich with alcohol. Mm -hmm. And also, I recognize the barrel-aged notes, which I, I didn't realize was a barrel-aged when yeah. you first introduced it. 
Uh, but I do recognize those notes, and I like them, and I like them in this beer also. Yeah, I, I do think that it's... Um, so it has the boldness of a high alcohol content stout. It has hints of barrel age, but it's not very strong in any of those things. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have preferences other than this. That's what I guess I'm saying. Yeah, that's a fair statement. It's, yeah, it's high alcohol content. I was feeling tipsy when i was at the peak of this consumption this consumption arc i think i understand what you're saying i really i liked it there's nothing disagreeable in the entire experience but i don't have anything to to say about it uh but i have been more excited about other more complex or maybe yeah. they're i don't know aaron drink this beer and tell us what we're missing catherine the third russian imperial stout why are we wrong yeah you let us know uh, beyond that, we're excited. This is our first entry in season two, and we are having so much fun having all of you join us. Uh, we hope the next season is better for all sorts of reasons. We're going to keep reflecting on our work. But at the same time, we are going to do the same fundamental things for another year. We're going to talk about research and focus on getting better. So if you're in for that, then discuss research and struggle well.